How y'all doing? Y'all all right? Good, good, good. Well, before we dive in today, one of the things I kind of want to give you guys a framework for is how we do messages at Epiphany. One of the big things that we, we like to do is we like about four or five styles of communicating God's truth. Four, 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 about four or five styles or, or, or of doing what we would call exposition. Say exposition. Exposition is the means by which the preacher gets into the scriptures and exposes what's in them versus telling the scriptures what they should say. Okay? And so there are four styles of that. One of those, we do book studies, that, um, that is, and, and that's for basically going particularly through a book and going expositionally through it. Um, a, a second way is, and that's, that's a book exposition. Um, then with second, we have what's called a topical exposition, whereas we, um, based on what the scriptures communicate all through scriptures about a particular topic that has been exegeted or studied by the minister to look at those different passages, bring them together in one section and expositionally explain them, not giving a title to it, but letting the title come from it. Y'all with me? Another one is a character study by which we would block off a particular section of scripture to, in order to lay out Christ in a particular person's life. Um, another one is what we would call a systematic theology or a doctrinal study. where We'll take a particular doctrine like the Trinity, uh, the deity of Christ, um, attributes of God, and block off those passages and expositionally go through them. Well, today we're going to have, we're about to begin our last topical exposition for a while. And today we're beginning an exposition on stewardship. Say stewardship. Now, now, now our, our urban spice saints, you know what I'm saying, that means those who are of a certain bracket of age, of numbers, have been on me about us doing a series on stewardship for like three years. Um, some, of the, some of the Christians who've been walking with Jesus for a little while have been like pastor, especially our number crunchers, you know, our number crunchers like pastor, you know, you, we got to get our weight up in some areas. And so I, was, I'm, I said, we're going to get to it, but I didn't feel like it was the time. Now I feel like we're, we're at a good time to begin this year off with a series on stewardship, then we're going to get back to our book studies for a while and, and flounder around in the scriptures in a good way for a while. But today, we're going to start on stewardship, and I, and I want to start off by, by, by setting the pace of it, because one of the things that we want to be careful of in our preaching is to be moralistic. Moralistic means if you do this, then God does this. Well, we don't believe in moralistic preaching. We preach gospel-centered preaching. So that means that because Jesus has done this, now I am able to, Right? That's, that's the difference. Okay, so every text we go to, we're looking to say that. Like, not do this, do this, do this. There is things to do, but it's empowered by Jesus, not by our desire to do it by itself. That's very important for us to understand. So even as we go through this series, I don't want us to get very moralistic and, and just trying to do things in our own strength um, and, and that type of thing. But today we're, we're going to talk about, we're going we're gonna to get into, ah. Smell good just looking at it, but, uh, but, 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 as we begin today talking about stewardship, I, I want to talk about a particular subject that I think must invade the entire series. It has to because without this beginning it and being the thread, the gospel thread throughout it, what, what will happen is is people will get excited about the wrong thing and be motivated by the wrong reasons. So it reminds me uh, of a story of a dude that. Um, they had a nice car. He went and bought a car. He really wanted a car bad. He had leather interior. You know what I'm saying? He had, he had, he had a good cold AC in it. Nice hot heat, heated seats. 
You know what I'm saying? Vibrating seats. Why you on the road and carrying on? Put fur over the seat. You know how cats do. You know what I'm saying? Got lights around the bottom of it so at night it looked like he's gliding across the ground and, and everything. Um, got a spoiler kit on it. Some of y'all don't know what a spoiler kit is. That's aerodynamic stuff around the edge of the bumpers. Then you put the joint on the back, on the, on, on, on the back, you know, the, with the light, extra light in it. Then he put the chrome on the side of it. Then he got, his, then he got some, new, um, some new rims, got them dipped in chrome. Got him some low-profile wheels. Hooked that thing up. Got him some switches. I mean, doing all kinds of stuff. Then you know he had to have a system. You know what I'm saying? He had the handless Bluetooth system where he could talk on the phone through the speakers. Then it would fade off, and then the music would come back up after he get off the phone. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he had a fly system. Then he had the subwoofer in the back. He had two, three amps in it. When he rolled past him, <laughs> just going past in the car. He bought this car and put all of this energy into, into getting this right. He got the window smoked out tinted. Just smoked out, blacked out tinted. You know what you do when you get blacked out tinted. Got to be careful of yourself when you get blacked out. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all don't. But he invested a lot in this car. And so one day he went, he went to see, you know, went in the house, went to bed. Before he go to bed, while he's sleeping in the bed, he checks Facebook and then he goes, just to make sure his car's locked so he can hear it. And then he wakes up the next morning, take a shower, put on his smooth gear, went outside, no car. So he's like, he called a popo. He's like, yo, my bad, you know, police. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and so I want to get, want, don't want to get clink, clink. Don't do that when you get pulled over. Don't be talking about the popo. You'll get locked under the jail. But anyway, um, but <laughs> no matter what you've done. But, and so, and, and, and so he went out and called the police like, man, somebody stole my car. They put out an APB. I mean, the car was very specific. It was custom done and everything. So it's very easy to spot. Come to find out, he checked his voicemail message, and the car didn't get stolen. It got repossessed. He had low-profile rims, system, smoked-out windows, junk was booming, but didn't make the payment. But he found out something very quick, that although he put all that investment in that car, he doesn't own it. He doesn't own it. Today we want to talk about Yahweh the owner. So you can't talk about stewardship until you talk about ownership. Because many of us, we relate to our possessions in a way that reflects ownership, not stewardship. And so the greatest demand for the Christian, and we're going to see how the gospel is so powerful to give us this perspective, that we need to really understand this identity that we have as Christians to be proper stewards. But before you can steward anything, you have to understand the doctrine of ownership. It is a doctrine, and it is helpful for every believer to understand that even people who aren't in Christ should understand stewardship versus ownership. But here in Psalm 24, if, the, if, I had some, if I had some like 80-year-old Christians in here and they saw verse 1, they just go into the spirit immediately. Because they, you know, it, I don't know what happened, but when you turn 65, all of, everybody 65 and up just quote this by heart in the King James Version. 
It don't sound right in other versions. I got the ESV this morning. But it's something about this joint in the King James, though. It do sound dope in the King James. It just, it just sound lofty. But, 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 but we're going to look at divine ownership from here. Verse 1. So the earth is the Lord's. <laughs> I'm going to be embarrassed how simple this message is. It's so embarrassing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. I like that therein stuff. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to falsehood and does not swear deceitfully? He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. See, the old folk would have stood up on this part. They said, talk, doc. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. I might hoop in a minute. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Make room, it says. Who is this king of glory? What's his identity? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Wow. If I, if I can before I, because I'm ready to attack. But if I can, can I give some, a backdrop for, for the Psalms and this text? Can I do that? You know, the Psalms, interestingly enough about the Psalms, it's important for our minds and how we approach them because many didactic Western Christians who are linear in their thinking approach the Psalms like they're reading Paul. But it's very different because it's written in figurative speech. So interpretive tactics are very different, but the depth is the same, if not even richer. He says here, he says, for the most part, the Psalms do not contain abstract theological statements, or anything approaching philosophical theology. The theological richness of the Psalms emerges out of a profound knowledge of God rooted in relationship. You hear that? It says, at bottom, the framework for all dimensions of that relationship is provided by covenant. Covenant is a legally binding agreement between two or more people. Thus, the Psalms are covenant writers. They're in covenant, relationship. So their writing flows from that. Thus, the, psalm, the psalmists are covenant writers, whether their perspective is individual, national, or that of Israel's cult. And their knowledge of God is rooted in covenant. Therefore, they respond to God in prayer, in praise, or in a particular life situations because of an already existing covenant relationships which makes such response possible. In the broader sense, all psalms may be related to the central theme of covenant. They're about, they're, people disagree on what type of psalms we have, but we have, we have 
key core songs that are basically four to five types. You have, you have a psalm of trust, psalm of praise, messianic psalms, and psalms of lament. Now, this is an interesting one because this psalm at hand that we're going to dive in is really a hybrid of sorts. It's a psalm of trust and a psalm of praise. It, 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 it seems to, to kind of give us the vantage point of pointing the covenant person's heart and posturing it in a particular way towards the king of kings. So, so this is what's interesting about the figurative language of the Psalms. These, there are aspects of human experience and aspects of the knowledge of God for which the mundane language of prose cannot provide adequate expression. See, the Psalms is that area of the Bible that, that is not straight to the point, but it uses figurative language to make your mind linger and think and meditate on the greatness of God and the pain of your circumstance. So, so, it's, it, so, so the Psalms wants to get you, you're not, you're not supposed to just read through the Psalms fast. You're supposed to let yourself fathom about uh, the parallelisms and all the hypercatastasis and the metonymies of adjunct and subject. And, and, and you're, you're supposed to just let yourself soak in the metaphors and similes and let God work in your soul about the limitless knowledge that he provides to his people. That, that, that's, that's what a Psalm does. A psalm is supposed to draw you out and pull you in and to take you up. A, a psalm is supposed to get the person of God and invoke them to emotional and volitional and intellectual depth. But one of the greatest things that a psalm does is it does what Jesus says in John 5. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But guess what, homie? They all speak of me. So go get your search committee out, get your flashlights out and your lexicons and look for me. But first, before you see him, you got to see the shadow that's cast so that when you look at Jesus, you see him properly based on the work in the text. And so this psalm is beautiful. It, it has a backdrop, a beautiful backdrop of, 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 of First Chronicles chapter 14 through chapter 16 and First Samuel chapter 6. Now, you got, you, you got to laugh about the scriptures have so much in it that's artistic. It, it, it's, it, you, it'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. It'll make you scared. It'll make you get up off your behind, too. But in First Chronicles chapter 12, I mean, chapter 14, David got, got, got anointed as king. He's excited. So David gets the band together. They just grab up the ark, put it on an put it on a, um, a ox. They put the card on the, um, the, the, uh, the uh, ark on the ox. And David, David, I mean, David just, you know, boogie woogie in the camp, getting his, getting his dance on. David just, come on, bring the ark. You know, he having a good time. And so the ark starts sliding off the cattle's back. And Uzzah, Uzzah is a good, cool dude. Uzzah said, man, I'm going to make sure. I'm, I really care about the presence of God. So I'm going to make sure this joint don't fall. So he puts his hand towards it. Now, the text doesn't say that he ever even touched it. He reached out his hand towards it and went, poof, just fell asleep, died. And David was like, now, God, we're trying to carry the ark all up and, you know, worship you and carry it. How are you going to do this? 
But the Bible says that David feared the Lord that day. <laughs> so they left the ark in a house and they started blessing the household. And then they did it one more again, but they went to Numbers 8. They found the scroll of Numbers, looked at how it should be properly carried, and then they redid it all over again. And this time, David wrote a song. He wrote a song to remind him of who God is. So that when they brought the ark in this time, he wanted them to sing it with the priests leading it. And, 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 and he wanted them, uh, them to sing it so that they can know where they are and where God is. And so the first statement of the song that he writes is, the earth is the Lord's. See, 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 that came out of experiencing God in fear. And, and properly relating to him to the point where he says the earth is the Lord. So that brings us to our first point, Yahweh as the owner, is acknowledge God's rule over all creation. Real simple. You got to acknowledge it. It says the earth is the Lord's. I like that. You know what I'm saying? It's the clouds, the rain, the thunder, the lightning, the tsunami, the water, the fish, the ground, the earth, the wind, the air, the earth, everything on this planet belongs to Lord Yahweh. That, 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 that is a starting point for everyone, whether you know God or not. It is very important that you know who the owner is. And, and, and so this is, it's interesting that it used the earth is the Lord's. It uses his covenant name to talk about the depth of his ownership. It says, and the fullness thereof. So it was interesting. It, it, it doesn't just say the earth itself, like the sky and the ground and the water, they belong to God. It says even everything that's in it that he furnished the earth with. So, so when we talk about God furnishing the earth, I mean, when I look at, when I look at planet earth, I'm, I got to get that whole thing in Blu-ray. I don't know if you've ever seen planet earth. I mean, but they show waterfalls all over the planet. They're showing fish in the deep parts of the water. One fish got a thing attached to his head like this to come out like that, and he move it around. And when another fish grab it, he bite it and swallow it, and then his thing comes back out. I mean, that blows my... Then he can, have, he can have lights come on on it. He blinks, and... I mean, I'm just like... You got squid. You got... I mean, you got octopus or octopi. I know one of the English people going to get me. Um... Tiger sharks, hammerhead sharks, whale sharks, whales, sperm whales, or humpback whales. I mean, everything on this planet belongs to God. Ownership is, the, is, is a beautiful understanding of us delving into the idea of stewardship. And then he says he founded it in verse 3. He, four, he founded it upon the seas. And establish it upon the rivers. Now, now, some commentators go too far with this because they read modern day science back into this passage because they wouldn't have known that about the earth's core and, and stuff going into the deep, like land. They don't know how far land goes down. So in the mind of the psalmist, it's not trying to emphasize science. It's trying to emphasize God's power. And so in the sense of it, why would you use water as a foundation for something? Or establish something with water. The understanding of the psalmist is, is water isn't strong. You can't hold anything up with water. But the Bible, he's saying that 
God used water as the foundation by which, and that goes back to Genesis, by which he brings land up. And so that's interesting. So if water is the foundation and water isn't holding the land up, but the land goes down into the water, then in the mind of the psalmist, what's powerful about this is that there's a foundation beyond the water that holds it together. That means that God himself practically and euphemistically is the foundation for it. That takes us to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It says, Jesus Christ holds all things together. So that means everything in its molecular structure, down to the depth of its molecules and atoms, Jesus is upholding it by his mighty power. Every commentator was dope how they were just saying, this points to the chaos of creation. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I am. But, but, but it, it points to the chaos of creation and God bringing out of chaos something. See, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did, and, and the earth was tohu vuvohu. It was formless and void. But what's powerful is Isaiah 45, 18 says, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty to be tohu vuvohu. In other words, he created it to be inhabited. And so what God did was God not only created creation, but he gave organization to the created order. So God is not a God of chaos. And so he went in the midst of the chaos and shaped the beautiful landscape of everything. And it points to him holding everything together. And it says he founded it upon the seas. And we, we, we talked about that reality of him founding it be, um, upon the seas. I'm blown away as I look at the scriptures. How much it talks about God's ownership. First Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. says, therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all. The assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father. Forever and ever, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both the riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Psalm 50 and 10 says, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle of a thousand hills. Psalm 89, 11 says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Exodus 9, 29, Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the, the earth is the Lord's. The whole reason why I'm doing this is so you can know that he's the owner, not Egypt, not Pharaoh. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God, behold heaven and the heaven of heavens. <laughs> wow. The earth with all that is in it. Job 41, 11. I like this one. He says, who has, oh, God, God, it's like God got offended. Now, see, when my wife get offended, she go like this. Now, I don't know if God did that, but I know God kind of gave this look like. And he says, who has first given to me? Who's, God says, who's actually given anything to me? In other words, even your little tithes and offerings, see, it's just like Christmas if you celebrate it. And you give your kids money to give you a gift. <laughs> you know, that's what God does with us. We don't really give him anything. <laughs> you, 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 we, we, I mean, you, you, you see our mindset? <laughs> he said, who's giving me that I should repay him? Who, like, who, who, I, who do I owe anything? Like, am I in debt to anybody, he tells them. <laughs> what, whatever is under the whole earth is mine. He says in Haggai chapter 2, he said, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. He said, all that stuff is mine, fam. He even told Job, he said, where were you when I hung the foundations of eternity? Huh? I don't hear you, Job. Ownership. God does not like us to misunderstand who everything belongs to. Whose is it? Acts 17, 26, Paul in his gospel presentation says, In him we live, move, and have our being. So the animation of the human body is the work of God. And the breath that's in us belongs to him. Even the heartbeat and the heart itself belong to him. <laughs> so, so the question somebody may ask is, if God owns everything, then why did Jesus die on the cross? As a payment for something that he already owns. I'm glad you asked. God wasn't buying us back from Satan or some other surrogate owner. But his purchase, he his he purchased to do with the nature of his relationship of what he owned. Let me explain something. God, has a, God owns everything, believer and unbeliever. However, the believer is, a, is, is relationally owned. It's relationship, not just ownership. And so, and so Christ died on the cross to change the way God related to us as those who he owned. Now, God deals with what he owns in two different ways. Destruction or relationship. There's only two things. So, because he owns even unbelievers, his prerogative is to send all of us to hell. Because he owns us and he can do with us what he wants to. However, in the cross, he's chosen to buy us with a price. So, therefore, we are to glorify him in our mortal bodies. So, because of that reality of God's work through the cross, now we have been given under his ownership, a different type of relationship. That's why. And so now his wrath has been removed from us and give us the ability to enjoy eternal relationship with him. That's why he died on the cross. 
So what does all of this point to? It points to the sovereignty of God and the dominion of God. You're going to hear as the thread through all of this, the kingdom agenda of God. You're going to hear that God has dominion. Not only is he sovereign, he oversees and has control over everything, but he practically activates dominion. So what is the relationship of, of God's ownership to our understanding of stewardship? It's very important. It's the most important thing that we can understand. I like the way Calvin says it. Calvin says the characteristic of, true so- of a true sovereign is to acknowledge that in the administration of his kingdom, he is a minister of God who, that's all of us, that's not just the elders or deacons. Everyone's a minister of God, every Christian that is. He who does not make his reign a subservient to the divine glory, that is to God, acts the part not of king but a robber. He moreover deceives himself who anticipates long prosperity to any kingdom which is not ruled by the scepter of God, that is, by the divine word. For the heavenly oracle is infallible, which has declared that where there is no vision, the people perish. This is me saying this. Therefore, there is nothing on the planet that belongs to men as people by property. You see around in this community, houses get rehabbed. Erected. Gentrification takes place. Urban settings are renewed. But God is still the owner of the creation no matter who has a deed in their hands. He has the ultimate deed and title to all creation. Nothing belongs to us. So Christians are stewards through the grid of the gospel. So Jesus' death and resurrection reconstructed our ability to have right relationship with God and his creation. You understand that? See, that's very, very important. The cross gives us the ability to relate differently as stewards. See, when you are not under God's guise, it's easy for idolatry to take place when you don't understand that he's the owner. So so God, through Christ, gives us the ability to put creation in its proper perspective, as David wrote. And so stewardship, let's define it. Stewardship is to acknowledge God as owner and so proprietor of all creation, thereby understanding that all creation, concrete or abstract, within our sphere, sphere is placed there for us to worship and glorify him with it. We're going to talk about that over and over and over again. Since everything was made by, through, and for Jesus, we must view everything through the grid of Jesus Christ as central. Everything in our sphere must be viewed with that in mind. So a steward is one entrusted to manage someone, something, or someplace for an owner. So everything in your possession, nothing belongs to you. As much as you spend time on your hair cutting it, perming it, dreading it, weaving it, balding it, whatever, it's his hair. Even the the stuff you wipe out your eyes right here, He owns it. Everything. Even when man mines for something in its raw state and creates something else with it, even after you've changed it into something new, guess what? He owns it. Second point, you must take pleasure in your relationship to the ruler of creation. Verses 3 through 6. It says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? This is, this is dope. Because here in this text here, what you begin to see is 
Now they're doing the procession. They're doing the procession with the ark and coming into Jerusalem. And what they're saying as Gad is coming, Naphtali is coming, Asher is coming. All of the different children of Israel who have land around the surrounding area of Jerusalem and Judea. And as they're coming in, they're doing a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to commemorate the coming of the presence of God into the place on its holy hill, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is the highest pinnacle in Jerusalem. And they're going to bring the ark there, and they're going to place the ark there at this time in a tent. And as they're going there, they're wondering something interesting. Who in the world shall ascend to, the, to this hill? Why are they asking that question? Because they understand the holiness of God. This is going to relate to stewardship deeply. See, 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 they're, see they're, going, they're going and they're going and they're ascending. This idea means to pilgrim somewhere. It says, and who shall stand in the place? The idea of stand and ascend here has an interesting euphemism throughout the Old Testament because it points to who can come, who can come before someone of great worth without being of equal worth with that person of worth. Who can stand? Even that understanding of stand points to even who can come in battle with somebody and actually stand and win and do a good job in the battle. So they're asking almost a rhetorical question. No one can stand. No one can stand in this presence. This is very important. No one can stand in this presence. No one can just walk up on God. Something has to happen to give them the ability to have the right to be there. Like you can't just watch Tusi up in there talking about, well, I say my prayers. I read my Bible. I go to church. Who can? Now, people who are in a relationship with God are like rock still that they're in it. Why? Because they ask the question, how am I here? That's what, see, that's what they're asking here. How am I able to come before him? And then walking around the ark, and cats is just dancing, going like this around the ark. And, and the priests are carrying the ark, got their fly gear on, gold and all rubies and stuff. And they're carrying the ark together with the long poles. And cats is dancing around the ark. And, and, and people are wondering, how can we be in the presence of God? The mercy seat is right here. Who can stand here and not get blown off the planet? Who can stand then it gives the qualifications of those who stand. Now look at what, look at what it says. Let me see if we can check these off here. <laughs> Verse 6, 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Nope. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? Nope. And does not swear deceitfully? Nope. Know what all of that is the anatomy of? Who relates rightly to God's creation? <laughs> who, who does? Who relates? And, and, and what's interesting is, is right here where it says, who has clean hands, points to murder. Who's murdered people unrighteously? Now some people, I ain't never stabbed nobody, I ain't never capped nobody. But what does Jesus say murder is? Yeah, slandering, gossiping speculating about someone's character without proper evidence. You murdered them. He said, so who has that? Everybody's like, they're around the ark like, you? <laughs> then he said, a pure heart. Wow. God, 
pure heart. I, I hate when people say, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. You're not bragging. What are you doing? What are you doing? Man, so-and-so, he, he really got a good heart, man. Really? I heard that our best attempts at righteousness are filled with ill motive. On your best day, your righteousness is as filthy rags. So who has a pure heart? A pure heart is the core capacity in the soul of the human being to rightly relate to God, themselves, others, and his creation. That's the centrality of what it means to have a pure heart. Who in this room can say that? That you've related to everything rightly. If you say that, I had, I had a glimpse where I think I was killing it, pride. Heart dirty. It says, then not lift up his soul to what is false. This word false means empty. So it points to the idea of idolatry. Who has worshipped what God has created? See, it's related to verse 1. The Lord is the owner. So who has worshipped what God has created? Well, I ain't never bowed down before anything. Well, have you placed anything ahead or above God? <laughs> but these are the qualifications of those who get to stand before the presence of God. These are the qualifications. And so David is singing, having them sing this. It's crazy. They're singing this. And does not swear deceitfully. That means giving oaths and lying. Um, calling a bill collector was overdue. And you I've been in a... I just got out of the hospital for three weeks. I know my bill was due last week, but. Deceitful. Who's promised something and didn't deliver on it? Deceitful. But you knew you wasn't. Not you, it, it happened in the process. You knew you wasn't when you said it. You knew you weren't going to be able to come through when you said it. He said, this is what will happen to those who are qualified to be in his presence. He says, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, this is interesting. Is... Here in the text, it points to receiving something, not giving something. Now, how do you receive righteousness from God based on doing this if you weren't already righteous in the first place? As I was struggling through this section and, and talking with the commentators and men of the past, all of us agreed on the fact that this points to the fact that the righteousness was imputed by God. He will receive righteousness because God doesn't give righteousness because you did a good deed. You have to already be righteous in order for him to accept the good deed. So the righteousness had to proceed it in order for the good deed to be properly accepted. And, and so therefore it points us to the fact that the gospel is not just start in Matthew. By works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So here it's showing us that no one was ever justified by the law. No one. But no one's work. They were living by faith. How do we know that? It's right here in the text. It says, such is the generation 
of those who seek him, who seek the God of Jacob. This idea of seeking is an act of faith. Seeking means I don't have something, I need it from you. <laughs> so salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, has always been the way it's been done. That's nothing new. Seeking, this idea of seeking is the reasoning behind why God gives righteousness. Because people come to him empty and void of their knowledge of the ability to have a clean heart, to have clean hands, and to lift up their soul to what is false. They come dirty just like all of us. We all come. I'm unclean. I can't do it on my own. And what do you do in response? You fall on the mercy seat because they were watching the ark carried in. And I can only imagine, I don't know if it was covered or not, but there's blood on it. And they didn't scrub the ark. The ark was filthy with the blood of the sacrifice. Always. And the blood stacked up and saturated on the ark because these are the sacrifices of the sins that pointed to, put our sins away, away but pointed to the fact that none of us earned it, but that there had to be a sacrifice for sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you seek him. And so they're worshiping the fact, God, I know, I don't know how I'm here. I don't know how I'm standing before your presence. And so what this does is points them to how God is helping us through imputed righteousness to relate properly to what the owner owns. You can't relate to what God owns rightly without Jesus. Anything you've ever misappropriated, anything, Jesus covers it. And through repentance and turning to him, it's interesting, one commentator said, this is pointing to the fact that they're seeking mercy and, 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 and displaying repentance of the fact that they can't do it on their own. So they're asking for empowerment as they're worshiping the God. Salvation. So stewardship first starts with the gospel, period. Why? Since redemption is God's passion to reorchestrate his creation, his creation's response to him, he provides Jesus as the redeemer of all things. Psalm 110.1 says, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool to thy feet. What does that mean? Well, God the Father is making sure that everything is reorchestrated under the rule, practically pointing to him as the owner. Amen. That's Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal is to hand everything that God owns practically back over to him, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So the believer, we give trailers when we trust Christ as Savior, and he causes us to subdue every area of life. That's when we begin looking at what we steward after we've looked at the one who owns. How? Because the gospel tells us God owns, and because God owns, he has placed things in our sphere to subdue for his namesake. That calls, that's called announcing the reign of God. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, what was his first message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Dwight Pentecost would say it could be translated, um, the kingdom of heaven is within your grasp already, but not yet. So therefore, our stewardship of God's ownership 
are trailers to the fact that he's going to come back and practically lay out him being in all and through all. What does that mean? That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going to fill creation and trees are going to start shouting. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, is that God's rule will pervade everything and it will be practically and functionally seen, not just a theological jargon that we talk about. And so, and so when we talk about this, the Christian, when we go through these weeks, it's not about just tithing. Tithing or grace giving? Which one? What should we do? I would not talk about anybody. You know, I mean, I mean, how do I steward this? How do I do this? What, what about my time? time show? Don't, don't, you don't start with that. You don't start. Because if you start just working with stuff, you're going to find yourself fumbling in your stewardship all the time. How do I steward my eyes? And you start with that as the question. That's the wrong question. How do I steward my eyes? Who owns your eyes? And who redeemed you to use your eyes differently? Now, how do I use my eyes? (laughs) The last part of this. We must desire the subjugation of creation under God's rule. Verses 10 through 7 through 10. I, I like this. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up ancient doors, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now, you got to understand what's happening. you got to understand in that day, their cities were bricked off all the way around, and then there was a big old wooden door that it took about 100 dudes to push the lock off of it. On top of the wall are cats that are guarding. Back and forth. And, and, and are looking for anybody to come towards the door. And you can only get entrance a certain way. But what they're saying is the procession is outside the gates. So they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. And King David is dancing. Getting it in. Dancing. You know, I mean, he, him and, him and, I mean, he had relentless. Ain't nothing new, y'all. It was relentless back then. You know, David was, you know, getting his dance on. Surrounding the ark and the priest carrying that thing and the glory of the Lord hovering over the ark and the God, then the watchmen are on top of the wall and they look because they guard the wall and they're always wondering, are we going to be able to protect this place? But they look off in a distance and see God's community bringing the ark into the city. I could imagine the archer dropping his spear. And worshiping. I can imagine the guy with the spear and the shield worshiping. And then the guy say, yo, open the gates. Open the gates. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And they say, who's coming? Who is it? Because they said, in order for us to open this up, we must have the identity of the one that's going to come through the gates. Or we will not open this gate up. He said, oh, it's cool. Know why? He said, who is the king of glory? He says, the king of glory. And they're like, they holler back. They say, Before we open it, who is the king of glory? Then he hollers back, the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Oh, the warrior God, he's on his way, fam. I'm going to tell you again, lift up your heads, O gates. It's almost personification, but it's talking to the gates and the gatekeepers. And it's saying, gates open up, it's okay. And lift up, lift them up, O ancient doors, for the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He said, the Lord of hosts. 
Oh, he can come in. And so they begin, they begin the long push. And they're singing the song and they can hear it. And they're singing the song. And they're singing it all together. And they're singing, the Lord, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. And they that dwell in it. And all of them are singing together as they're pushing. And, all, and you can hear the door, just the wood just rubbing against the other piece of wood. Coming over as they're singing. So you hear wood. You hear dancing. You hear music. You hear singing. And you see spears dropping. And people losing their mind. Because the presence of God is coming. Why was that important? It's very important. The reason why it's important, family of God, is because the one who owns everything is going to hang with us. Salah. The God who is mighty in battle is going to defend. This is a far and near prophecy and already and not yet. Here it's talking about the ark. But there's a far prophecy from here that has yet to come to pass. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he is going to enter the city and they're going to sing this song all over again. But he's going to be mighty in battle. So he's going to begin fighting and holding to account everybody who claimed to own something. And he's going to kill them. Rightfully. Strong in battle. Now what's interesting is that when you look at other texts, the fighting is interesting. Because the glory here, the presence of God left in Ezekiel 10, but it's coming back through Jesus. Isaiah 63 says, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments and Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? Then he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, though. Alone? Hold on. It's as if Jesus has come back from battle with blood all over his linen outfit and his gold outfit, just blood all over it. He's coming back, shaking his hair off, his wool dreadlocks. Like uh, Revelation chapter 1 says, he's going to shake his wool dreads and put his hood back on. And the blood is going to come off from the fight and the battle with his enemies. He's called the Lord of hosts, which means he's a Lord with a mighty army, but he doesn't even let them fight. Because the owner is saying, I'm the landlord. It's now for me to come back and get, my, get all the stewardships out of the way right now. And only those will spend eternity with me. Who have allowed me through the through Christ alone, through, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone to come into relationship with me? We'll just be kind of sitting back like this. <laughs> Pass me the popcorn. Pass me the popcorn. <laughs> We're going to watch Jesus take everything back. Everything. 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 Cats can talk about how much gear they got. Cats can talk in the video how many women they got. They can talk about, they the boss of this and the boss of that and they knew. You. 
Let's see how bossy you are when Jesus comes back. Let's see how bossy you is when his flame is his eyes. He shoots you with heat vision. And the lake of fire opens up and swallows everybody up. And we, and we just going to look at each other. I'm going to look at one of y'all. I'm going to be like, ain't you glad you elect? I mean, ain't you? I mean, did you see what the lake looked like? And we're going to worship. Because he said, we're not going to ask, why didn't he do this? Then we're going to thank, thank you, God. Thank you, God. We're going to bless him for eternity. That impacts our stewardship. Because at the Bema seat, we'll talk about it next week, we're going to have to give an account for our stewardship. Everybody. We're not going to hell, those who trust Christ, but God will judge our stewardship. And So this whole thing is about God's work. I'm praying that God will work something in us. Well, I look, because I, I, I know I'm not there yet. I'm, I, I'm, I'm admitting, I don't believe God owns everything practically. In many ways, I still function like I'm an owner. And I'm praying that God, through this series, through the word of God, will transform us into stewards. Practically. Not just talking smack. But to be able to allow the grafting work of the word of God to transform our souls. So that we can relate to this. This is not mine. And it, it impacts the way we give to other people. The way we support the kingdom, the way we deal with our work, the way we deal with our spouse, the way we deal with our children, everything. But it first starts with having a relationship with the owner. If you don't have a relationship with the owner, your stewardship is going to be a mess. And if you don't practically live out the reality that the owner owns it and that his son empowers us to walk in biblical stewardship, it's going to always be a mess. And so, family, let's get ready to get on board. Let's buckle up and get ready for the work of God through Christ to reorchestrate us towards him and posture our lives. As long as you don't even own you. It's mine. No, it ain't. I bought it. Yeah. You, it was borrowed, though. So maybe you're here today. And you are functional. You're, all of us act as dysfunctional owners. Maybe you're here and, 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 and you don't know Christ. You, you haven't met the king of glory who's going to come back and hold you to account, just like all of us, for how we have stewarded everything. This is the center of the Christian life. How did you steward everything? This is what people get judged for. Everybody. So maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. You got to admit that you're a sinner. That mean, a sinner means that you've missed the mark, missed the mark of attaining to God's standard, which all of us have failed at. Everybody. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But wh why does that matter? Because God is holy. What does holiness mean? Holiness means that God is pure and clean in every aspect of who he is. Not just in what he does, but in who he is. That's holiness. And why does that relate to my sin? Because he expects everyone to be holy. And when they're not, he puts a contract out on their life and says, I am going to remove them. How does he have the right to do it? Because he owns you. And because none of us can pay for our sins, 
ever. He created hell for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. But then we join them in company because guess what? It takes eternity to pay for our sins. So we have an eternal life sentence, everybody. Everyone is, has eternal life sentence. But Christ came and suffered on the cross. And those six hours accounted for eternity. It counted for hell for those who believe because he was innocent. So he took on our sin. We took on his righteousness if we trust in him and him alone. And on the third day, he got up from the grave. And those who trust in him, wrath is removed from you and the contract is torn up. And you get the ability to not get judged your stewardship for hell, but for heaven. And you get to spend eternity with him on planet earth and planet and, and, and in heaven. So if you're here today and you have been, your hands aren't clean, <laughs> your heart isn't pure, you're deceitful. See, all of us as Christians know what we would say, we would raise our hands too. We would say, But the difference is, we don't claim to be able to pull ourselves out of that mess. Someone pulls us out of the mess for us. And that's Christ. Trust in him today. Confident, not, not in anything else. Don't say, I've been in church all my life and I've always, no, 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 you didn't. No, you didn't. Born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Yes, you were. All of us. As a baby, you were a sinner. My son, right here, held by Pastor Doug, has sin in his innermost being. He's not innocent of anything. All of us need the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here today, if you're here today, you want to trust Christ, we got some cards on the back table. We want you to fill them out, and our con connections team want to connect with you. And we want to walk you from point A to point B on what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the opportunity 